join with me in prayer and and as as we pray i want i want you i want you to um petition before the lord to uh speak to your heart amen um for him to speak directly to your situation to your life um whatever it is that you are needing from god i i want you to come boldly before him and ask him um to offer you counsel regarding that um amen cuz the bible says in first peter chapter 5 if any man speaks let him speak as the very oracles of god um now it's an interesting term because you know in the ancient world for example amongst the ancient greeks uh when someone needed to uh gain wisdom or obtain direction for their lives they would go to the oracle um there is for example in plato's uh apology i don't know if you guys ever read that there is something called the oracle at adelphi and uh w- without going all into it basically in ancient times they they would have spirits speak through them uh at uh, through the oracle and that's how people would gain wisdom is is through uh giving attendance to the oracle but nevertheless peter it, he says if any man speaks let him speak as the very oracle of god um so um when when the church gathers together uh we should be hearing from the lord amen it's not just a a book it's not just um that we're that we're delving into the it's not a magical book neither is it a fictional book it's a prophetic book and when one is anointed of the lord uh god speaks through that vessel through that oracle amen and so let us always keep that in mind right this this is this isn't just um a bible study we we come to meet god right it says in the prophets the lord whom ye seek you know like Leonard Ravenhill pointed out he says today we're not seeking the lord we're seeking everything else you know I, one of the things he would often preface uh before speaking in a meeting he would say what what'd you come here for tonight did you come here to meet god right that that's that should be our primary focus is to meet god to hear from god amen and ultimately not be mere hearers only but be also doers of the word james tells us that if we do the word we would be blessed in our doing right so amen let the house of the lord say amen, amen. <coughs> um or or type amen <laughs> um so <coughs> excuse me let's join in prayer and ask god so as i say often eliminate any distraction uh you know it's customary of the devil to start throwing pl- uh thoughts in your head 
Hey, remember you're hungry? Hey, remember you got that to do for tomorrow? He just throws all these different ideas in your head. Is it any coincidence? Now, uh, coincidence is is a co-incident. So there's a particular incident, right? And uh, it coincides, each incident coincides with each other, right? Well, this is, this is not a mere coincidence, right? Uh, the, see, a coincidence are two incidents that seem to be related or correspond with each other, but don't. So the fact that you happen to just all of a sudden be hungry or you just happen to get a thought that comes in your head, oh man, you know, you st anxiety, oh man, I got to do this for tomorrow, all these different things when you join is not a coincidence for the same reason that when you go in your private time to go pray is it any wonder why like when you go to the secret place and pray all these different things come up in your mind that you didn't do or you should do but you weren't thinking about those things before you started praying right Oh, come on, someone, you know, you're going to talk to me. You, you act like that doesn't happen. That happens because the enemy is already putting thoughts in your head. Because he wants you distracted. That's what he wants. He wants to get your mind off of God. Right? And and he wants to get your heart off of God. He wants to get your mind off of God. He, he wants to get everything about you off of God and put it on self, put it on anything. It doesn't matter. Just don't put it on the Lord. So let, let us uh, put our minds on God. Like Paul says, set your minds on things above, right? Where Christ is seated. So let us put our mind on things above where Christ is seated, not on earthly things. Right? So, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you in the mighty name of Jesus. Oh God, I, I don't come in the name of Muhammad. I don't come in the name of Buddha. I come in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I come boldly to the throne of grace that I may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, your word says that whatsoever we ask in your name, we shall receive. That the Son may be glorified. So Father, we pray that you would glorify your Son. Having given to us, Lord, the petitions in which we've asked, God. Glorify the name of Jesus Christ this day. God, I invoke your holy and your precious name, the name that is above all names, the name at which demons shudder and tremble, at the name in which demons are expelled out of bodies. I extol that name, and it is that name that I invoke, and I invite to be glorified in the midst of this assembly of the saints. 
So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that every demon would be subjected to the name of Jesus Christ, that every demon would be uh, would be dispelled, and that your will would be glorified, that you would actualize your will in your holy people this day. Father, I pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son. I pray that we would not do our will, but we would do the will of him who has redeemed us and purchased us by his own precious blood. Hallelujah. May you have the full rewards of your sufferings and may the government of God be upon us. And may it, be, uh, be, may it come to complete fruition and fullness in our lives. Hallelujah. May the government of God actualize in our lives. May we be subjected to it. And may the kingdom of darkness, may the works of the devil, and may the government of the wicked one be utterly demolished and destroyed to the uttermost in every aspect and facet of your uh, people's lives. So, Father, may the word go forth. Give me uh, prophetic insight. Give it, Lord, inspiration of the Holy Ghost. May your unction be upon me this day to preach what thus saith the Lord. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. And the people of God say amen. Hallelujah. Amen. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. Um, I want to ask that you turn your book, your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. <coughs> you know, I was conversing with his brother yesterday on Facebook and, um, uh, and him and I were talking, well, I think it was yesterday, maybe the day before. And uh, there was this particular topic that we were disagreeing with in the New Testament. And um, and he ended up saying, uh, he, he ended up digressing from the conversation, um, which is very typical. But, uh, and I, one of the things I told him, um, because he didn't know how to respond to all that I said, he ended up digressing. And what I was telling him is, Brother, um, you're going to need to know more than Romans and Ephesians and the Gospels to interpret the New Testament. You cannot adequately interpret uh, the book of Revelation. You cannot adequately interpret even the Gospels by just reading the Gospels. You cannot adequately interpret the book of Romans by reading the book of Romans. You have to understand that the New Testament is a Jewish book. It is prophetic, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Doubtless, that is true. However, it is packaged in Jewish language. It is rooted in Jewish promises. It, and so, therefore, to fully understand the New Testament, which is the Old Testament revealed, 
you have to go back to the Old Testament, which is the New Testament concealed. So the old, a lot of times people say, I'm a New Testament Christian, which is a ridiculous statement uh, for a number of reasons. But let me, let me share with you the first, and it's that we're not a New Testament Christian. We're as if the Old Testament has nothing to say to us. Now, certainly we are in a new covenant. I agree. However, we are Christians, which by the way, Jesus never assigned us that term, neither the apostles. That was a derogatory term assigned to us at first at Antioch. So uh, we are ultimately followers of the way. Does that make sense? But um, the Old Testament has... Uh, it still speaks to us. Is it any wonder that Paul the Apostle is, when he's writing in the New Testament, has it ever occurred to us that he's actually drawing from the Old Testament? Do you ever see that? Do you ever go to your footnotes? Uh, when it says the deliverer shall come out of Zion, right? Or, you know, he has left unto us a remnant. Right, it, all, when he's citing these passages in Romans, or you know, Romans three, the, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery marks their ways, the ways of peace they have not known. He's all drawing from Psalms and the minor prophets, <coughs> the major prophets, the law. Amen. Are we following thus far? So, um, I, I was telling him. I said, modern Western evangelical Christianity emphasizes two books. Or three, John, Romans, Ephesians. And they think that they fully understand the gospel by limiting much of their, the scope of their reading to those three books. And that's not how you fully understand all of God's promises to his people. Um, I would have you know that the gospel is more than Jesus' death and resurrection. Did you know that? It's more than his death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, that's what Western Christianity has reduced the gospel to. But that it's more than that. Um, uh, the, the, the gospel includes the restoration of Israel, which a lot of people misunderstand. But it includes that. Um, and also a lot of it too is the gospel of the kingdom referring to the power of God. Such that if there is no demonstration of the Spirit's power, I am not coming with gospel, the, king, the gospel of the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of mere words, but as Paul says, in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. So it, it, we can talk kingdom all day, but until I can enforce the kingdom's government through the power of the Spirit, I'm all talk. Amen? Amen. <coughs> so, um, but if we like to turn to our Bibles uh, in Jeremiah... <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> let let us go to um, 
chapter let's see Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. So, no, let, 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 chapter 3, verse 6, let's begin there. So, to give you a little bit of uh, context here, <coughs> The, the people of God during these days um, were preached to by Jeremiah the prophet. Now, Jeremiah was a messenger, was a prophet of the Lord, sent to them, to the people of God, to inform them that judgment was coming. I don't know if you've ever heard of the, uh, the verse... Uh, they say peace, peace when there is no peace. Have you ever heard that uh, that verse before? Well, that's actually derived from the book of Jeremiah. <clears throat> now, Jeremiah was proclaiming to the people of God that the false prophets that they were giving their ears to were proclaiming peace, peace when there was no peace. Now, it would interest you to know that uh, the, the reason why there was no peace was because the northern uh, army was going to be invading the people of God and to be ta and to t take them captive. And that, that kingdom <coughs> was a Babylonian kingdom, right, led by the king Nebuchadnezzar. Um, now... The, the now, by the way, just, just so you know, this is this is why it's good to be able to read certain Old Testament and New Testament books synoptically, because, for example, the book of Daniel, who was Daniel in the whose palace was he in? He was in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar's, right? And so Daniel is prophesying. He's interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar concerning the latter times when. Uh, you know, he prophesied the fall of Babylon and the fall of the Assyrians, you know, the, and, and the, uh, the fall of the Greeks, uh, the, the fall of the Romans, and ultimately the, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the Messiah, arriving during the time of the Romans. The Romans represented the iron in Nebuchadnezzar's statue. But... The point of me bringing that up is that there's a number of books throughout the New Testament that harmonize, that, that correlate with each other. So that to fully understand this book, you have to read portions and aspects of this book. Does that make sense? But see, what we have done is we've taken little snapshots and, and we think that we have the full picture by just you know dissecting one single verse. You can't have the entire mind of God revealed to you through a single verse or even through one particular book. Amen? This is why 
we, we don't fully understand the character of God because we don't allow the entirety of Scripture to accurately and fully represent Him. Does that make sense? Amen, somebody. This is why uh, recently, you know, I was in a conversation and, and, and then, you know, about feeding poor people. And, and, and the reality is that b- believers largely think that it's our obligation to feed all the, the, the poor people in the world. That's not the reason why the church exists. See, but if we don't fully understand the character of God and His Word, we will impose upon others what even God doesn't expect from them. And that, that's legalism. There's two extremes that we need to avoid. There's liberalism and there's legalism. Does that make sense? Liberalism is trying to take away uh, uh, from the Bible what God has commanded. Legalism is trying to impose upon others to do more than what God has commanded. Does that make sense? Amen. So, <coughs> the rest of you uh, here, <coughs> so, um, but the point that I mean that I brought up about the um, homelessness, you know, or poverty or whatever. See, when when Jesus said when, when Paul remembered the poor, he was remembering his poor brothers and sisters. There was an obligation for the church to take care of those who were true widows amongst ourselves but even then like i read last time there was even a criteria for those who actually qualified as to be called widow they had to have been a believer first of all and they had to have been given to hospitality they had to be above a certain age and why did paul say that he says so the church may not be burdened and he says it, it and first of all even if they do meet all of that let their own family take care of them and then if they don't have anybody in their family then come to the church people have this mentality of give me give me when it comes to the church but they won't give anything to it does that make sense no we're we're not a we- we're not a social club we're not a welfare center we're no uh, uh hand me down uh we're none of that this is the temple of the living god that is what the church is. And that's the purpose for its existence on earth. Let the world govern their own. What did Paul say? Is, is it, it, am I to judge the world? He says the world will judge its own. He says, I can judge those in the church. The world's going to do what they're going to do. Let them do it. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't care we don't love people and all that stuff but you have to understand paul says be ready to do good unto all especially the household of faith so in rank and priority god's people come first before the world and if you put the world before the church you got it twisted i don't know why you would do you put the world before your own family 
No, you don't. So why do you do it to the people of God? You treat heathen like somebody special. Now, I'm not saying hate them, but I'm also saying don't put them above the church. But people don't, people don't like that. But it is what it is. You know, some church folk, they will bend over backwards to, to, to help out a heathen, an unbeliever, which I'm not saying don't help out anybody. I'm not saying that. But when it comes to God's people, his choice people, whom he has purchased with his own blood, they, they won't even lift a pinky. You got to think about that. But nevertheless, <clears throat> I, I want the word of God to, I want God to speak for himself. And he has through these 66 books. And I have no right to say what I want or to twist. What did Paul say? We're not those who peddle the word of God or tamper it. So we, we're not to tamper the Lord's word. But you know what? A lot of people in the church that are doing that every day. Even though they may not be purporting a false doctrine to the masses. You know what they're doing? In their own head, they're saying, oh, my Jesus looks like this. You know, I told some, someone recently, Jesus had no compassion for the faithless. But see, people get upset at that. You know why? Because it messes with the Jesus of their head. They say, oh, no, my Jesus loves every, he, he's compassionate unto all. No, he's not. I hate to break it to you. Isn't that why Romans says, citing Exodus, when God told Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy. I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. So that it's already exclusive. There is a particular people to whom he has not shown compassion. Look, see, this is where we need to know God. We need to understand God. For, for how long did God only have his dealings with the Jewish people and has shown unto them his covenant? Why didn't he do that to the Greeks? Why didn't he do that to the Assyrians? Why didn't he do that to the, uh, the natives here in the Americas? For how long? Men with, went without knowledge. Men went without salvation. But doesn't that occur to us? How long has God, was God silent upon uh, uh, nations? And what did he say to Israel? Because I have loved you, I have chosen you. Right? That's what the word of the Lord says. But, but the point though is, is this, is that Jesus did not have compassion for the faithless. How many people did Jesus pass by? He did nothing for them because they didn't have faith. What did it say? That he could not perform many miraculous works in, a, in his own hometown. Why? Because they didn't have faith. So you know how many blind people he passed up? You know how many demon-possessed people he passed up? How See, compassion isn't just pity in the heart. Compassion is not disassociated from acts. But yet Jesus did not act on their behalf. What happened to the faithless when they're wandering through the desert? They dropped dead. Right? So, um, now someone's going to cite, oh, in, in Timothy where it says, uh, what does he say? 
For if we remain faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. People butcher that verse all the time. It's not saying that God is faithful to the faithless. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that if we remain faithless, he remain. Look, read the verse preceding it. It says this. If we deny him, he will deny us. If, if, he rem, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Do you see the connection there? It isn't saying that God remains faithful to the faithless. It's saying that if you deny him, he will deny you. If you are faithless, he remains faithful and cannot deny himself. He can deny you, but he cannot deny himself. Do you see? You see how people twist the ver the verses to say to get it to say what they want it to say? No, what he's saying is if you if you deny him, he ain't gonna deny himself. He won't claim allegiance to you. He already said in his word that if you can't confess him before man, by the way, Romans ten says what that with faith we confess the Lord Jesus. He says, if you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my father. But if you if you deny me or you refuse to confess me, I will deny you. Amen. <coughs> you see how the, 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 the Bible says contrary to what a lot of preachers say today, but what, what are the modern evangelical preachers saying here today in the West? Oh, you know, you can continue to be faithless. God will still remain faithful to you. No, that's not what the word says. Doesn't it say in Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please God? For them that come to him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And by the way, this whole confession of the Lord Jesus stuff, see, people think, oh, you know, I can just mentally ascend to Jesus and, and I'm saved. No, you got to understand the implications of what he's saying there in Romans 10. See, for example, it's like someone who's claiming crip or blood or, or Norte or whatever, whatever gang that they're claiming, and, and they, they deny crip. They'll say, I'm not a crip no longer. Now, by the way, for them to say that means death. And so in their denial of their gang means their affirmation of the Christ. You cannot affirm Christ without denying the world. Now, when they said, so, uh, I, I, so when, they, when Paul said that if you confess the Lord Jesus, who was he saying that to? He was saying that to the Romans. Now, you know the Romans, Caesar required for incense to be burned to him and for them to affirm Caesar as Lord. That if you didn't, it meant your death. So that when Paul is saying that if you confess the Lord Jesus as Lord, he's saying that to the church at Rome who were Romans who were under Caesar. Do you see the connection? It isn't just, oh, let me just say, uh, say Jesus the Lord. Oh, here comes the so-called evangelical, the evangelist ministry. We got another one, folks. Uh, tally it up as another one saved. 
They don't understand that a lot of those people who are making the confessions aren't putting their life on the line. They're not willing to follow the lamb. They're just parroting what they've been pressured psychologically to say because the evangelist held the lost person captive for about an hour preaching to him something he didn't want to hear in the first place. <laughs> now he can post it on YouTube and tell everybody how great of an evangelist he is. Oh, look, another one saved. It's nonsense. Y'all following? So, so <coughs> the implications of their confession of the Lord Jesus meant their death. Now, of course, we're not living in that day and age, but you know, today we're living in a day and age if you confess the Lord Jesus, which if you confess him rightly, should mean you're denouncing of the LGBT. But once you start touching that golden calf, look at all the, the gays and the trans and all these other, you know, people coming after you. They, 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 will, they will let you have it. Right? It's so much for inclusion and acceptance. No, there ain't no acceptance. They just want you to bow to their agenda. And if you don't bow to their agenda, then they will try to make you bow. But no, I ain't bowing to nothing. The Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. So either you confess in mercy right now with the mercy allotted to you or you'll bow in judgment. Does it make sense? We, 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 have, we, we become so passive and weak in the body of Christ, we need to rise up as a church militant. <clears throat> Does that make sense? We, we need to rise up as a church militant, triumphant. That's, that's who we are called to be is a force to be reckoned with in the earth. No more of this hippie 60s Jesus throwing around flowers. That's not the Jesus whom we serve. Amen. <coughs> but nevertheless... Um, <coughs> You know, uh, real quick, I just want to share this, and then we'll get back to the the text. Is I was I was watching this uh, uh, this guy evangelizing, and uh, he was preaching, uh, you know, to people near a bar, and he was talking about how Jesus can save, and then this one guy belligerently and obnoxiously shouted to him in front of everybody in the bar. He's all. If I come, you know, he, he used profanity. If I come and beat you up, is your God going to save you? And then the guy, and to, to me, and the reason why I take time to share this is because I want to correct our language. I don't want us to parrot what everybody else is saying, which is just really not a biblical response. All right. The, the guy responded, but I love you. And to me, that 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 I, I cringe at that. First of all, I don't see the apostles ever saying that. 
Can you show me an instance where the apostles say, but I love you, bro? <laughs> you ever see Jesus saying that? Do you? Right? I want to challenge you because it's not there. I've tried to find it and it ain't there. Come on, somebody. I, if this offends you, you have to look back to the text and say, is it there? That's not what they say. That is not their response. So, um, you got to understand the mind of the apostles. They're declaring Jesus is king. So, they're, essentially, it's repent or perish. Because Jesus Christ has given you 40 years to repent. That was the message to Jerusalem. And the Roman armies invaded Jerusalem and destroyed them. So the coming of the kingdom meant the destruction of what could be shaken. That's why in Hebrews says, whatever can be shaken will be shaken. That which cannot be shaken will remain. What cannot be shaken? The kingdom of the Christ. Amen. And he used the Roman army to invade Jerusalem as his iron scepter. But, you know, anyways, the, the now, how I would respond is, is different than that guy. I, I, I won't, I, I don't tell people I love you if they're, they're threatening to beat me up. <clears throat> you know, I would have responded this way. I would have said, you know, um, I'm a man of peace, and I come in peace. Um, now, to answer your question, I don't, I can't promise that God will save me. But neither can I promise that God will save you if I call down, make a demand on heaven to repay you for your iniquity. So, what do you want to do? Do you want to keep peace, or do you do you want to go there? Because... God will repay you for your wickedness if you harm me. So, but but look at look at all throughout the scriptures. Look at through the scriptures. What happened with when Abraham when they came against the patriarchs? Where the, did they go away scot free? No, they didn't. Does that make sense? So, um, but, but look, look, going back to, uh, Jeremiah here. So in order for us to fully understand the text, we have to allow the text to speak for itself and we have to allow other passages in the scriptures to, to complement the verse that we're that we're reading <coughs> so the northern army so there were false prophets in jeremiah's day that was telling the people of god hey peace peace when there was no peace right you know why because there was pending judgment that was going to be poured on unfaithful israel as a result of their sin as a result of their iniquity. And so here comes the prophets on the scene. Hey, peace. 
peace. Nothing bad's going to happen. That's that's essentially their report to unfaithful Israel. And Jeremiah, he comes on the scene and says an entirely different message. You know, one of the interesting things I see all today, especially especially uh, on social media, is people saying that they're a prophet. But they're only speaking good news. Now, to be sure, the gospel is good news for those who believe. It's bad news for those who don't. That's why Paul says, We go around as the aroma of Christ unto one, a sweet aroma unto the other, the aroma of death. You know what that means? Yeah, if you don't believe, you're going to die. What do you think perish means? It would interest you to know that he's not just talking about until they go to hell. Their death was going to be a a physical death first. Does that make sense? Oh, look at, look at all throughout the, look at the judges, look at the kings, look at the major prophets, the minor prophets. When the prophets had come on the scene and they were preaching a message, what was their message? Their message was essentially, you're going to be taken captive. There's an army going to come against you because of your sins, right? That, that was a common message. And that was the message of Jesus. And this is why he weeps over Jerusalem. <clears throat> says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. He says, now these things are hidden from your sight, and your army shall surround you and make you desolate. So the armies were the Roman armies. But here in, in Jeremiah, the armies were the, the Babylonian army. But Jeremiah is trying to tell them this message. Now for those who resisted Nebuchadnezzar could have their lives spared. They would be taken into captivity for 70 years. But for, the, for those who believed the false prophets that they could win in war... They availed themselves, you know, they tried to resist uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and they died in the process. But Jeremiah tried telling them, and so now, how might that relate to your life? See, when you don't believe God, but you're believing other messages, you're believing other people, you're believing this uh, modern psychologist over here, you're believing this guy over here who doesn't carry the lamp of the Lord, who darkens counsel, and then you end up suffering for it, and you wonder why. Does that make sense? Amen. <coughs> but look, it says, uh, um, uh, Jeremiah 3, verse 6, During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? So what is he saying? He says, Israel has been faithless. You know, the word pistis is the Greek word for faith. And it's never disassociated with faithfulness. So someone says, someone is saying, I have faith. 
and the guy he 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 ain't uh, submitted to spiritual authority. Um, he is living the life he wants to live. He's out going having sex and fornicating. Uh, no, bro, you're faithless. <laughs> Show me your faith. Uh, you ladies, are you going to believe that if a man says he's faithful to you and he's out running with other women? Don't worry, honey, I'm faithful. <laughs> See, people, yeah, good luck believing that. But somehow we want to convince ourselves that we're faithful to God if we live a faithless life. And, and, and theologians with their PhD is trying to convince you all the time and they have convinced the church that. I've learned all it does, all it takes to deceive the masses is a PhD. A suit and a tie and a large following. And people will believe you. But come on, women with common sense don't believe that. But somehow we believe it when it comes to spiritual things. And it's because we're products of veils. We've been veiled by a false teaching, by traditions of men, by the leaven of the Pharisees. And so, but it says, I gave faithless Israel a certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her. She defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. You ever met those people that say, you know, oh, I'll be with you church uh, uh, next Sunday or, you know, they'll, they'll say... Uh, oh yeah, man, uh, I'll give Jesus a try, but it's only in pretense. In other words, it's just a, it's just a pretend. And they might even modify their behavior for a little bit, but there's no true authentic repentance. Don't be fooled by people. Oh man, I, I really feel this from the Lord. I know this is some, for somebody here. <coughs> There's some people in your life that will, will say Jesus we we'll even quote a couple of scriptures and they want you to accept them. Whether that's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a cousin, right? But they're only using Jesus as a common ground to keep a relationship with you. And then guess what? When, when you, you say, Mina, I, I don't know if this relationship is working out. You know what they'll say? Oh, I thought Christians were loving. I thought they were accepting. Now you see the ploy of witchcraft. They're trying to manipulate you. And, and, and manip they're trying to cause your psychology to change. They're trying to bend your mind. Right? Isn't that what they do? But you know what they're, they're, they're using for their arsenal? Modern Western gospel. I thought Christians were tolerant. No, that's the LGBT community. <laughs> That's not the church. Come on, somebody. The Bible doesn't say, 
uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, you know, and, and be tolerant with all thine heart. It doesn't say that. Toleration is not a fruit of the Spirit. You know that? Amen. Tolerance is really a product of cowardice. Amen. <clears throat> Only the cowards are tolerant. Now, you know you can be tolerant and be impatient. Did you know that? See, patience is the fruit of the Spirit. Just because you're tolerant don't mean you're patient. It just means you're afraid to speak up. What does the Bible say in uh, uh, Matthew 18? If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. It doesn't say tolerate him. Now, patience comes when your brother repents to you. Okay, I understand. You messed up. That's patience. In other words, it's long-suffering. Because he made things right. But tolerance is you're, you're, you're entertaining wickedness passively. I don't tolerate, uh, a, I don't tolerate any, uh, just anything in my house. As I've said before, I don't tolerate certain people. I don't tolerate certain beliefs. I don't tolerate certain music. I don't tolerate certain practices. And guess what? God is the same. He doesn't tolerate stuff in his house. Amen. So, so don't tolerate wicked people in your life in the name of Jesus' love. Oh yeah, you know what? Love will, do, love will rebuke. Love will say, hey, I have these boundaries. I have these expectations. If you can't fulfill them, I guess we're not, you're not for me. Speak up for yourself. It ain't unchristlike to speak up for yourself. Amen? And so I, I belabor this point is because I don't want you falsely guilted because of bad teachings, things that people tell you that you should do, that you should be the doormat, that you should be, the, you know what I mean? That you should be the world's punching bag. No. Amen? Um, so speak up for yourself, respect yourself, respect yourself enough to know that you have expectations and you have boundaries. <clears throat> and don't let people use witchcraft on you because that is a form of witchcraft is, is their gaslighting, their, their manipulation they want to impose their will upon you. No, the only will that you're to obey is God's will. 
You're not even supposed to obey your own will. What did Jesus say? Not my will, but your will be done. So, oh, I thought that was, I thought you were a Christian. I am a Christian. What are you? A witch doctor? <laughs> right? Throw it back in their core. What are you? Christians wouldn't be trying to manipulate me into your will. Ah, ah, how dare you? How dare you, madam? <laughs> they get all offended, right? <coughs> so, <clears throat> it says, um, So, God ends up scattering Israel into a foreign, a foreign nation. As a result of their iniquity. As a result of their sin. They're away from God's promised land. They're away from... The temple worship. They're away from all of these things as a result of their sin. Have you ever been there? To where you're far from where you know you're supposed to be? You're far from where God desired for you to remain because of sin, because of whatever it was. And you know what? You, you can be very, you can be so-called close, right? Even attending a Bible study, but you're far from God in your heart. But look at, <coughs> um, <clears throat> so so I want you to get that picture. Remember, to the Jew, that they. they, they they have the temple in Jerusalem. That's where they worship the Lord. That's where they offer uh, uh, their sacrifices unto God. Right? They, that's where, you know, they, 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 I'm sure they heard the word of God expounded to them, you know, by the priest and, you know, the, all is well. But because of their faithlessness to God, their, their adultery, Jeremiah is sending them a message that they're going to be invaded and they're going to be taken captive and they're going to be brought to a foreign land and be given new names. You know how Daniel, uh, uh, where was it, uh, Mishael, um, and I forgot their names, but in the original Hebrew, but they were given uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those weren't their real names. But they had to learn the tongue of the Chaldeans. They had to be given names of the Chaldeans, right? And they were fed the food of the Chaldeans. So they're, they're subject to an entirely different system, an entirely different government. And they're having to endure that along with their children for 70 years. 
See, I don't care who tells you, but sin puts you into bondage and tries to reshape your identity. And, and, but, but see, but living in living righteously is what brings freedom. Living after the precepts of God is what ensures your liberty. So sin, it, it's the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season. Yeah, they're pleasurable for a season, but then it comes back and it haunts you and it exacts payment from you. And the payment is too much to pay. So let us stop believing false voices. Let's stop believing false prophets. Let's stop believing the devil, right? Because if we believe their voices, we won't believe God. And if we don't believe God, we won't have faith. If we don't have faith, we are faithless. See, God isn't, see, here's the difference between faith and works. See, works, you have to do everything yourself. You have to work extra hard for it yourself. You have to get it yourself by your resources, your strength, your connections, your networking. You have to do it all yourself or you can rely upon the promises of God and he will get it for you. I, I don't understand why people have such a difficult time understanding this. It's the difference between you, your employer telling you that he will give you a thousand dollars if you put the hours into it and versus your father or your mother saying for your birthday, we're going to give you a thousand dollars as a gift. That's the difference. Is it one you're not working for it and the other one you are? So do you want to rely upon yourself to get what God wants to get you for free? Because if you're not working for it, then it's not a matter of wages. It's a matter of the faithfulness and the goodness of God to get you what you can't get yourself. But when you try to get it yourself and you don't wait on God, you end up birthing an Ishmael. Right? And we know the result of that. It leads to bondage. Come on, somebody. Amen. <coughs> so, you know, that, that's what Abraham did. He couldn't wait upon God. Now, to be certain, he did have faith, but, you know, he, he kind of screwed up a little bit because he tried to rush the process. He was impatient, so he took matters into his own hands. Don't take matters into your own hands. <clears throat> mm. Don't don't take justice into your own hands. See, I, I, I there's some of you that you feel like you want to get back at somebody. What does the Bible say? Vengeance is mine, but saith the Lord. I will repay.
See, pe- people, you know, people don't understand that God is a just judge. And for those who have wronged you and they don't repent, God is going to repay them. See, God don't say something so he don't, and he doesn't mean it. And now, mind you, that's in the that's in the New Testament. Since we always like pointing out, well, I'm a New Testament Christian. And yeah, and you know, Paul's quoting from the Old Testament. Amen. So Paul's quoting from the Old Testament, and he says. Uh, that God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And by the way, and I pointed this out before, in Luke 18, what is the Lord actually instructing us to pray for? That God would exact vengeance. Go read Luke 18, beginning at verse 1. Yes, he's speaking about importunity in prayer. Don't give up. Persistence. But the particular petition in which he's instructing us to pray for is a prayer of vengeance. So for those who say, for for those who say, uh, you know that that isn't a valid way of praying for us as believers, that's a lie because Jesus Himself instructed us to pray thus. In fact, in Revelation chapter six, they're also praying for justice to be poured upon their enemies as a result of shedding the blood of the martyrs. The souls that were under the altar, they said, How long, O Lord, until you exact payment for our blood? Right? You know, see, this is where you get into trouble where you don't allow the Bible to interpret the Bible because people immediately go where Jesus says, Pray for your enemies. But that's not an unqualified uh, uh, statement because, uh, for example, in Jeremiah, I believe it's in chapter 7. Uh, it's where is it at give me one second let me look this up real quick Uh, yes, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. And this is what God says. <clears throat> so do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Why don't we quote that verse? Right? So so what we want to do is single out one instance, right? But how come we don't... See, look. 
We, we single out Jesus saying, pray for your enemies, and we don't think that it's an abuse for only having our eye on that verse. But when someone, for example, will go, let's say we went to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16, and we only focused on that verse, we would consider that an abuse of, of Scripture. Because we'll say, hold on, wait, 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 wait a minute. Look at what Jesus said over here. But why don't we treat the same why don't we treat it the same way when it comes to our quoting of Jesus over there in the Beatitudes where he says, Pray for your enemies? Why don't we say, Hey, wait, 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 what about this verse over here? Do you see what I'm saying? See, it's an abuse only if it ain't a verse on compassion. Does that make sense? We only consider it an abuse if it's a verse that we don't like. No, we have no right to do that. God didn't change. Remember in Acts chapter 8, when the sorcerer told Apostle John and Peter to pray for him? He says, they responded, your money perish with you. They said, you pray to God and see if he would forgive you this wrong. They didn't even pray for him. You know, I've had times to where, where, you know, someone told me to pray for someone like their family members and God said "Mm -mm, don't don't pray for them I don't want you to pray for them now I'm not saying it happens all the time it's probably the the one to five percent out of the but it's still a reality Come on, somebody. Does this does this side of God offend you? Does, is this side of God something you don't like about Him? And so I, I deliberately focus on some of these passages to challenge the paradigms that have been constructed for you by people who don't want to allow the totality of Scripture to speak. I know it's not popular. I know it's not nice. But it's biblical. Amen? So, so, so going back to the vengeance, <clears throat> there's times God says, hey, pray for justice upon them. Hey, don't pray for them. And there's times where you want God to bring justice on someone and God says, pray for their mercy. So, see, what God, he, he does what He wants and He says what He wants. That's in, that is in keeping with His character. And guess what? We're not always in alignment with it. So we have to purpose ourselves through the Holy Ghost to say, God, what is it that you want me to do? And it might be the complete opposite of what my flesh wants. Amen. So, <coughs> God is not confined to man's box. He's not confined to man's test tubes. He is God all by himself. 
and he stands alone as God. And he doesn't need your permission. He doesn't need your approval. He doesn't need your validation. He's going to do what he's going to do with or without you. You know, one of the most futile things is for men to get angry at God and shake their, shake their fists at the heavens. What is that going to do to him? He's not unsettled. He's not threatened. You know, I've seen this stupid video recently on YouTube. Some lady said, God doesn't care if you're angry at him. Come to him. It's like, oh, no, he does. It doesn't mean he's anxious or he's unsettled about it, but you better come to God right because he won't hear you. What does the Bible say? That he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Doesn't The Bible won't say that he gives grace to the proud. So you want to come to God angry with pride, demanding of the Almighty? Get out of here with that. No. Now, if you're angry at something or at somebody and you come humbly and say, God, this isn't my heart, get it out. You're coming in humility. Right? That's humility. But if you're angry and you're angry at God and you don't humble yourself, no. He won't hear you. In fact, don't even come to him because if you do that way, it's a sin. Right? The Bible says the, the prayer that if any man turns away his ear from the law, even his prayer is an abomination. It says that in Proverbs. Right? Amen. But it says the prayer of the upright is his delight. So God's delight is your prayer if you're upright. That's why it says in James that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Not every man's prayer accomplishes the same. There's a lot of people, they're praying, but they aren't getting any results because of the disposition of their heart. Or also the practice of their lifestyle. See, don't let anyone deceive you. Unrighteousness will negate your prayers will hamper your prayers, will hinder your prayers. So, anyways, <coughs> so going back to uh, Jeremiah, now, <coughs> one of the things, what happened with these people is they were scattered abroad. You know, it, there's, I don't know if you ever heard the term the diaspora, when the ten northern tribes were scattered abroad. As a result of God's certificate of divorce to Israel. Look. Read uh, Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8. What did the Bible, what does the Bible say? I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Well, wh where was Israel sent to? Israel was sent to Babylon. 
right? And so the ten, the, the ten northern tribes of Israel were scattered out from Jerusalem. Now, now here, here's where I want to break down a little bit of end times with you guys. So, look at verse 14 in Jeremiah chapter 3. It says, Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, People will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will not. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. Now, to be certain, God ended up bringing back the, those who were captive in Babylon back to Jerusalem. Okay? However, there is a dual fulfillment here in Jeremiah 3, and God's ultimate purpose wasn't necessarily his bringing the 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 uh, to his bringing back of the people of of Israel back to that earthly land that wasn't his ultimate goal so when god is saying that god now mind you this is the so-called restoration of israel okay god had a purpose to restore israel now a lot of people think that this is this you know it's an earthly thing that all you know all of them are going to gather back and all this other stuff that's not what the text is referring to and let me prove it to you if that was in fact the case right here see right here it talks about the ark of the lord no longer being remembered so we know that it was not fulfilled in their days because the Ark of the Lord was still something very much valid under that Old Testament system. Does that make sense? Amen. So, so when they did return back after the 70 years of captivity, they still had a... a that Old Testament worship of the Ark of the Covenant, right? The, the, the brazen altar, the, the altar of incense. They had all of that. And the Ark of the Covenant was, you know, beneath the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is the throne of God. So, uh, so when they gathered together back from the 70 years of captivity, this promise still wasn't fulfilled. Because God is speaking of a days in which they will no longer seek for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. You know why? Because he would have established a new covenant. And therefore, uh, no longer necessitating the Ark of the Old. Okay? Now, I want to show you something. You know, it says, At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of the evil hearts. In those days, the people of Judah would join the people of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave to your ancestors as an inheritance. Now, 
Um, give me one second. Now, when you go to Jeremiah chapter 50, mind you, keep in mind that God is saying that I'm going to bring you to Zion. Okay? Where is he going to bring them? Yes. Amen. Um, for those of you that don't know where Zion was, it was in Jerusalem. Zion was the hill of the Lord, and that's where they worshiped God, is in Zion. That where That's where the temple was located, in Jerusalem, in Mount Zion. Does that make sense? So, Go to Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 4. It says, In those days at that time declares the Lord the people of Israel and the people of Judah uh, and the, the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. They will ask the way to Zion. And their faces toward it, they will come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. Now, I want to I want to show you something. You guys have to bear with me because I'm going to be giving a number of verses here. Um, what did the Bible say? It will be a what? An ending covenant? No. What kind of covenant will it be? Evan, an everlasting covenant. Now, when you read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, the Bible speaks about an everlasting covenant by the blood of Jesus. Okay? Now, if we, we can get that up, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant. What does it say? The eternal covenant. Brought back from the dead of our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Does that make sense? Now, when we go back to Jeremiah chapter 3, what did God promise Israel he would bring them? He says, I will give you shepherds, right? When he leads them to Zion, he will give them shepherds. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of our souls, but he will give them under shepherds, right? But the, the promise to the lost house of Israel. Now, by the way, so when, when Israel was sent into captivity, they were considered lost they were away from Zion they were lost so when Jesus came on the scene in Matthew he said what did he say he says I have compassion on them for they are sheep without a shepherd and so and he says I have been sent none uh, to none save the lost house of Israel. Does that make sense? Now, this is why when Jesus commissioned 
the apostles to preach the gospel, he told them to go to from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? Now, the reason for that is because the gospel needed to be preached to all the Jews who were scattered abroad in the diaspora. They were the lost house of Israel that began during the days of Babylon when they were scattered out from the homeland. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, now, to be sure th that God <coughs> did bring some of them back to earthly Jerusalem, but in Jeremiah chapter 15, now that wasn't the fulfillment of his promise made in Jeremiah 3, nor was it the fulfillment of his promise made in Jeremiah 50. Because in both instances, God is promising to bring them an everlasting covenant. And we know that it could not have been fulfilled during the days of the Babylonian Empire because at that time there was no everlasting covenant. There was only the first covenant. And under that first covenant, what did God do? He sent Israel away with a certificate of divorce. Does that make sense? Amen. Yes. So when Jesus is coming on the scene, he is coming in fulfillment of the promises made to Old Covenant Israel. Now to be sure, the Gentiles were included in along as a wild olive shoot along with Israel. Now in Romans, have you ever read that passage where it talks about then all of Israel will be saved? That for a time there has been a hardness of Israel until the fullness of the inclusion of the Gentiles. And then once they believe, then all of Israel will be saved. Jesus said that, you know, go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, it would. So when Jesus had in mind the uttermost parts of the earth, he has in mind the places in which Israel was scattered. He wasn't talking about, now, to be sure, yes, we want to go to other places in the world where Jews are not located, and I understand all that. I get that. <clears throat> but in Jesus' mind, he has a particular mission to restore the lost sheep of Israel who were scattered abroad in what was called the diaspora, the ten northern tribes being scattered abroad. And now, when, when, when that happened... When the apostles had gone to all those places. Now, quickly turn to 1 Peter. I want to show you something. First Peter chapter one, verse one. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So there were exiles who were now who is uh, uh, Peter an apostle to? The Jews. And there are uh, uh, God's chosen 
that were scattered abroad, that were exiled. What exile was he thinking of? He was thinking about the Babylonian exile. When the, the ten northern tribes, because of God's divorcement of them, scattered them abroad away from Jerusalem. Does that make sense? And so when Jesus came, he was preaching to what? The lost sheep of Israel. Right? Um, now look at uh, James chapter 1 verse 1. James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. I'll read that again. To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. So, <coughs> are, are you all following this far? Because I, I know that this is, you know, kind of informative and maybe some of you guys haven't heard this before. Oh. Okay. So, in Revelation, there was a particular number. Have you ever read it? it says 12,000 from Dan, 12,000 from Gasher, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from uh, uh, Simeon, 12,000 from Naphtali, right? That were the elect. That were to, Now, when I say elect, don't think I'm speaking of rubbish Calvinism. God doesn't predetermine their salvation. God foreknows who will be saved, but he doesn't predetermine it. Predetermination means God chose you against your will. No, that's not how it works. God knows who's going to choose by their own free will in advance. And so those are the elect who will freely choose. Does that make sense? So there is an elect of all these 12 tribes that needed to believe the gospel in, in, uh, through the commissioning of the apostles when they went from Jerusalem, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, and as well, mainly through Paul, all of the Gentiles, the full inclusion of the Gentiles, and then when the full number had come in, which happened in the first century, then all of Israel was saved. Okay? Because in Galatians, in Ephesians, it talks about God broke down the middle wall of partition. What was the middle wall of partition? It was in the old temple that separated the God-fearing Gentiles who were welcomed into the Jewish community because they wanted to freely and they were also circumcised, but even then didn't have the full access to the temple, so there was a middle wall of partition. But the Bible says in Ephesians, God broke down the middle wall of partition, making the two one man. Amen. Does that make sense? So, i.e., the new creation. This is what is meant when Jesus says in Revelation, I make all things new. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, If any man be in Christ, behold, the new has come. It's not talking about your new life. He's talking about the new man, both Jew and Gentile. Okay, so now... um. 
Now, to be certain, you do, you're saved and you have a new life. But in context, that's not what Paul is talking about. When he says you're in Christ, he says, Behold, old things have passed away, the new has come. What In context, what he's talking about, he was contrasting between the Mosaic law and the new covenant. So the old, this is why in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, it says, In the new covenant, it, it says, In the ushering of the new, that means that there is an old. And he says, that which is old is obsolete and outdated and ready to vanish away. Does that make sense? So the old covenant was the old. And along with the temple worship, along with the priesthood, that was the old creation. So when God brings both new Jew and Gentile into the new man, that's the new creation. Does that make sense? So... So now, how is it then that God restored Israel at the full inclusion of the Gentiles and the Jews scattered abroad in the diaspora? See, mind you, they're scattered abroad. So the apostles have to go and preach to all of them. Now, mind you, the promise was that when they believed that God would bring them back to Zion. Remember? Right, Let, let's read that again. Jeremiah 50 verse 5. They will ask the way to Zion and turn their faces toward, uh, uh, toward it. They will come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant and will not be forgotten. Um, my people have be, been lost. Uh, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. Whoever found them devoured them. Their enemies said, We are not guilty, for they sinned against the Lord, their verdant pasture. The Lord, the hope of their ancestors, flee out of Babylon, leave the land of the Babylonians, and be like the goats that lead the flock. Now, um, let's also read uh, verse 20 in chapter 50. In those days at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none, and for the sins of Judah, but none will be found, for I will forgive the remnant I spare. Remember in Romans, Paul talks about the remnant will be saved. And then he also says in Jeremiah, so this is the remnant he's talking about. The Jews that are scattered abroad, those who will believe on the Lord Jesus, they're the remnant, both Jew and Gentile. Okay, and this is what he says. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Judah in those days, saith the Lord. He says, in those days, I will forgive their sin and their iniquities and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And the writer of Hebrews quotes that from Jeremiah in his letter to the Hebrews. And what does it say here in verse 20? That guilt shall be found for Judah and Israel, but there will be none. He's speaking about the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, where he will restore Israel and bring them to Zion. Now, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. There's two things I want you to remember. He's going to bring them to Zion, and he's going to bring them out of Babylon. Okay? You have that in mind? 
Go to Hebrews chapter 12. And mind you, um, he's writing to the Hebrews, hence why it's entitled Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire. So, so first of all, the writer of Hebrews wants them to understand that the mountain that they have come to cannot be touched. In other words, it's not tangible. So in case the Jew thought that the promise of the restoration of Israel and their leading back to Zion would be brought to a mountain, he's letting them know that the mountain that they would be brought to cannot be touched. It's not a tangible thing. Now look at verse uh, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. So where did they come unto? Now who is he writing to? This is the church. Where were they led to? Mount Zion. But he told us that the, that the mountain that they have come to cannot be touched. Ah, it's heavenly, which is why he calls it the heavenly Jerusalem. So God's promise to the lost house of Israel in Jeremiah 3, in Jeremiah 50, to bring them back unto Zion was not a promise to bring them back to earthly Jerusalem. It was to bring them into a kingdom that Jesus told the Pharisees and the apostles cannot be observed with the natural eye. He says, don't say here's the kingdom and there it's coming. He says, for it cannot be observed. He says, for the kingdom is in your midst. Isn't that what he said? So when we come to Hebrews 12, the people of God who did believe, both Jew and Gentile, have come unto Mount Zion. Does that make sense? And this is why if you go watch, turn to Galatians chapter 4, because people are still thinking, oh yeah, there's going to be this massive revival in Israel. There's going to be this massive revival and all these Jews are going to come. That, that, that's, a, that's a lie. That's not what God is talking about. Now let me show you, because if you think that Jerusalem is Jerusalem, you're wrong. And I can prove it from the text. See, God, so remember how I said there's a new creation? What did the writer of Hebrews tell us? What did he tell us we had come unto? He says, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. The church of the firstborn. So Mount Zion is the church. Mount Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem. Why? Because on Jerusalem, on in Jerusalem was Mount Zion. In Mount Zion was the temple. Now who is the temple of the living God? 
Oh wait, who is the temple of the living God? Us. Who had come down from above. Didn't it say that in Revelation? That there's a temple that comes down from the heavenly Jerusalem? Ah. And God's dwelling will be with men. Now, it would interest you to know, it didn't say, it's not talking about heaven. Because it doesn't say that man's dwelling will be with God. But God's dwelling will be with men. And that's what Paul tells us in Colossians was the hope of glory. Christ in your midst, the hope of glory. So, <clears throat> turn to Galatians chapter 4. I want you to bear with me because this is, uh, like I said, this might require a bit of your thinking caps. Uh, where is this at? Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 4 verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law. Now, where did the law come from? It came from Jerusalem. Right? Well, it, 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 it came particularly from Mount Sinai. But the law, whenever the, where the law is mentioned, it's always associated with bondage. Because the law made nothing perfect. The law could not impart life. Right? But the bringing in of a better covenant did. It says, tell me, you who want to be under the law. Are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, which was Hagar, right? And the other by the free woman, which was Sarah. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Now, it in, you would have to bear in mind that whenever the word flesh is used, it's used interchangeably with the law. This is why in Ephesians, what is it? Uh, I think it's Galatians chapter 6 or Ephesians 5 or Galatians 6, somewhere in the end of those two letters, Paul says, now the works of the law or the works of the flesh are manifest. Those who are under the law, right? Uh, the, the works of the law or the works of the flesh are manifest. He talks about all the you know, unclean things and stuff. So it says, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. So, mind you, Hagar represents a covenant. Sarah represents a covenant. Hagar represents works and flesh, old covenant. Sarah represents freedom, spirit, new covenant. Keep that in mind. But the Jerusalem that is above. Where is it from? Above. So he now he's speaking about a Jerusalem that is not earthly. Shall we call it the heavenly Jerusalem? As the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, which we just read, which was, by the way, the church of the firstborn, Mount Zion, right? So Paul is telling us right here, he says, but the Jerusalem that is above, the heavenly Jerusalem, what does he say? Is free... And she is our mother. So, where were we born from? Above. Where were we born from? The heavenly Jerusalem. Where did the temple come from? Above. 
the heavenly Jerusalem. Do you see that? Okay, now look it. It says, be glad, barren woman, you who were never born a child. Now, if you read Isaiah chapter 66, it says, can a nation be born in one day? As no sooner than Zion had gone in travail, she brought forth her children. Isaiah 66 is a promise of the new creation. Okay, so the church, the nation was born who is that nation what does peter says to the people who believe on the lord jesus christ you are citizens of heaven ah heavenly jerusalem we're no longer strangers to the covenantal promises does it make sense now it says you who never bore a child shout for joy and cry aloud you who were never in labor because more are the children of the desolate woman than her who has a husband. Remember, this was God's promise to Abraham, that your descendants shall be as numerable as the sea on the seashore and the stars of the sky. Sarah never bore a child. However, she was promised children by God, right? And remember, Sarah here is taken figuratively, representing the covenant. And so it is through that covenant, God brought fulfillment to his promise made to Abraham and had thereby uh, made uh, descendants as numerable as the sand, as numerable as the stars, through the Spirit, by the new covenant, and it is heavenly. Now, keep stick with me. Verse 29, At that time the Son, born according to the flesh, persecuted the Son, born by the Spirit, power of the spirit it is the same now but what does the scripture say get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's um hold on one second I, th this isn't the verse um okay verse 25 Go, go back a little bit. I want to show you something. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia. Okay. Now, wh where does she... What is uh, um, Paul referring to Hagar as? Right? Uh, uh, it says, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai. Right? And remember, the law came from Mount Sinai. Right? And what does he say? And corresponds to the present city, Jerusalem. Because she is in slavery with her children. So you know what he's actually saying there? That present city, Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, as we know it, is actually Mount Sinai. Now, now that's important because it was in the earthly Jerusalem where Mount Zion was found. But Paul is saying no. That earthly Jerusalem is actually a place of bondage. That is not Jerusalem. That is Mount Sinai. That's what his argument is. And he says, but the Jerusalem that is above, she is our mother. And where is Mount Zion found? Mount Zion is found in Jerusalem. So Paul is saying that the Jerusalem that they sought for is actually heavenly. This is why in Hebrews 
it speaks of Abraham and it says, for if he had, uh, um, Abraham had sought for a city whose builder and maker is God. And that city and, and building is, is made not with hands, which is what is spoken about in Isaiah 66, that it's a, it's a, it's a place not made with hands, right? Um, This is why in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, For if this earthly tent is destroyed, now when he refers to tent, he's referring to the old Mosaic worship, the old tabernacle. He says, For if this tabernacle is destroyed, we have a building from God firm in the heavens. He's not talking about some mansion in the sky. What did Jesus say? You are that city set on a hill. What was the hill? Mount Zion. What does it say in Hebrews 12? You have come unto Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, the church of the firstborn. Does that make sense? So, when Jesus preached the gospel and the apostles preached the gospel to enter the kingdom the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly Jerusalem, when all of the lost tribe of Israel, the ten northern tribes and Judah, and the inclusion of the Gentiles, when the full number had come in, he brought all of them to Zion. Hence the restoration of Israel. Is that making sense? So, That's 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 what is implied there. Now, now as I come to a close. Now remember. Now let me say this last thing. In Matthew twenty-five, speaks about the the restoration of Israel, <coughs> at the restoration of Israel. Like, Jesus also speaks about it in Matthew eight verse. 11 through 13 that that the 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 sons from the east and the west that 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 the, there were people from the east and the west right also referring to gentiles will come and 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 eat with Abraham in the marriage supper right he says but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out who would be cast out the unbelieving Jews again he was referring he was speaking uh to the Pharisees, and also Matthew 25, uh, and, and also Matthew, I think, 13, where he talks about that the, the tenants that were overseeing the vineyard, they will be destroyed, and it says that it will be given to a nation that bears its fruit unto God. So the time of the restoration of Israel is the time of the marriage supper. Because in Jeremiah 3, what did God do? He divorced Israel. Right? He divorced Israel. But the time of the new covenant, when all of Israel believed the gospel, as well as the Gentiles, he remarried Israel. And the remarriage is the marriage supper. And the marriage supper is the restoration of Israel. Does that make sense? 
Well, we read in Jeremiah 3, what did God do? He says, I divorced you, Israel. But he promised a new and everlasting covenant that the days would come when the, the guilt of Israel and the guilt of Judah would be found no more. And we know in Hebrews, who's quoting Jeremiah, he says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Judah in those days that I will remember their lawless deeds no more through the everlasting covenant. And Paul in Galatians 4 speaks about that covenant that is not an earthly thing. It doesn't correspond with Hagar because present city Jerusalem corresponds with Hagar, but the new covenant corresponds with the heavenly Jerusalem who is the mother of us all. So when we believe the new covenant that come down from above, we've entered into Mount Zion, hence the restoration of the Israel and, and God's remarriage to his people. Does that make sense? So, in closing, I, I want to, because I, I don't want to leave it just a mere inform, informative. I, I want you to get some application out of this. Um, you know, let me show you one more thing. You, you, got, you guys want to hear this? <clears throat> so in Jeremiah 50 are the rest of you here because I'm not seeing any uh, <laughs> I want to make sure that we're following <clears throat> yeah. okay um, in Jeremiah 50 God says in verse 8, Flee out of Babylon, leave the land of the Babylonians, and be like the goats that lead the flock. So when... So now contextually, here in this time, this is certainly referring to natural Babylon. Right? But as I've already pointed out, this entire text has a dual fulfillment. Okay, so that even though it is referring to Babylon, these verses will nevertheless have application for the generations later to whom it will apply. Because the, the apostles actually used verses in Jeremiah to their current audience. Right? So, so this, is the, this is how... Scripture can work, it has an immediate application to the people that the message was relayed to, but it also had a dual fulfillment, right? So that, yes, God did bring them out of Babylon in a natural way, but there was an old, that was a mere foreshadow of the greater reality of the fulfillment of that prophecy in the bringing out of God's people from a spiritual Babylon. Does that make sense? So I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 18. People always dispute on, you know, oh, what... Um, what is that Babylon... Hold on one second. <clears throat> uh, 
Babe, if you can, uh, put Jeremiah 50, verse 39 and 40. Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 39 and 40 in the chat. <clears throat> Let me read that first, then we'll go to Revelation 18. Because, mind you, in Jeremiah 50, what did God say for his people to do? He says, come out of Babylon, right? And we know Babylon, in that context, was earthly, but it having a dual fulfillment will nevertheless have application for the generations that are to come. Or not in our time, but generations that come from the time it was written which i'm pointing to is the the time of the apostles okay now when you read jeremiah 50 verse 39 it says so desert creatures and hyenas will live there now it will interest you to know that hyenas and these creatures and it says and there the owl will dwell those are unclean animals is that clear and when it's referring to unclean animals, it refers to actually demons. Okay? This is why, for example, the snake was an unclean animal. Who did it refer to? It referred to the devil. It will never again be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation as I overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah along with their neighboring towns, declares the Lord. So no one will live there. No, no people will dwell in it. So... Verse 40, he's referring to it as Sodom and Gomorrah, right? But in verse 8, he's referring to it as Babylon. Um, now, I want you to, I know I say we'll turn to Revelation 16, uh, 18, but let's go first uh, to Revelation chapter 6. Um <clears throat> No, I'm sorry, uh. It's, it's the book of Revelation. I know that. I forgot what chapter. Revelation 11 verse 8. So where, where, where did God say he was going to destroy? So wh where did God say he was going to destroy? It says Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He says to his people in verse 8 in chapter 50, come out from Babylon. And then in verse 39 and 40, he says he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jeremiah is actually conflating Babylon with Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that clear? Now, so when we go to Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, um, Well, let's start at verse 7 and read to verse 8. <clears throat> now, when they have finished their testimony, referring to the two witnesses. Now, I don't have time to unpack that. But you have to understand the book of Revelation is actually using a lot of encrypted language. So the two witnesses there actually refers to Jesus. I don't have time to unpack that, but suffice it to say, that's what it means. Um, it says, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So where was the Lord crucified? 
We know he was crucified in Jerusalem. But yet, the Bible is referring to Jerusalem as Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Isn't that in our, in that, in our Bibles? Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Excuse me, not Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So, it's referring to Jerusalem. So, again, where was the Lord crucified? In Jerusalem. What is the Bible telling us that Jerusalem is? He says it's Sodom and Egypt. Why? Where? What was Egypt a place of? Bondage. Where did the law come from? Jerusalem. But what was Jerusalem? A place of bondage. Because the law put people in bondage. That's what Paul was belaboring in Galatians 4. That this, they are the that they remember. So, who persecuted the church? The Jews did, the unbelieving Jews who were not the elect, right? And then Paul says that that Hagar's son persecuted the son of the free woman, and he says so. Now it is that the church is persecuted by the the children of the bondwoman. Who is the bondwoman? Jerusalem, present city Jerusalem, from whence the law had come, because the law puts people in bondage. And so what did the people of God experience in Egypt? They experienced bondage. What did Lot experience in Gomorrah? Bondage. That's why it says in 2 Peter, his righteous Lot was vexed in his righteous soul at the conversation of the wicked. He was oppressed. Does that make sense? So now when we go to Revelation chapter 18, it says this, verse 2, With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit. Remember what it says in Jeremiah 50? That she would be a haunt for jackals, the dwelling of all unclean animals. Well, Babylon, here, that, that was speaking of Babylon in Jeremiah 50. The Babylon spoken of here in, in, in Revelation 18 says it will be a haunt of what? Demons and every impure spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. What does it say in Jeremiah 50? It will be a place of owls and hyenas, stuff like that, impure animals. Babylon in Jeremiah 50, Babylon in Revelation 18. Now it says, For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now you have to understand that the Greek here for the word adultery is never disassociated from a marriage covenant. So when it's saying that Babylon committed adultery, it's saying that she was unfaithful to a covenant. Who was in covenant with God? We learn in Revelation, excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 3, that Israel was. And that since Israel was a whore and committed unfaithfulness to God, he divorced her. And this is why in Jeremiah 50, well, we won't go there yet. But then it says this, just to further prove my point. 
It says, um, hold on one second. Verse 24. In her, referring to Babylon, now mind you, Babylon, so it says that the great prostitute was named Babylon. And the word prostitute there again, because of her adulteries, is not disassociated from her lack of faithfulness to the covenant that she was in. It's not referring just to this prostitute that wasn't married. It's referring to a prostitute like the one in Hosea who was Gomer who represented Israel. Right? What was Hosea commanded to do? To marry a prostitute. To represent the unfaithfulness of Israel. So the prostitute here that is named Babylon is actually Jerusalem. And it says verse 24. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. This is not referring to Rome. It's not referring to the Catholic Church. Because what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He says, At this generation shall be all the blood of righteous Abel to righteous Zechariah. It will be required at this generation. Who was he speaking to? Those who dwelt in Jerusalem. Right? So, when Babylon had fallen, this is referring to... Now... Let me show you one other uh, Revelation 19. What did it say in Jeremiah 50 regarding Babylon? That it will become desolate and the smoke will arise forever and ever from generation to generation? Didn't it say that in Jeremiah 50 when referencing to Babylon? What is the reference to here? Revelation 19, it says, And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now, when the Bible uses language like that, it's describing judgment. It's prophetic language. You can't take it hyper-literal. Because wherever there's smoke, there's fire. The Bible says God is consuming fire. And fire always represented judgment. Right? And it would interest you to know that in 70 AD that Jerusalem was destroyed by fire. Okay, so this is what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, that not one stone of its temple be left upon another. And it says, and that, that those who didn't believe, right, that for them there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth where the fire is not quenched. Does that make sense? So there's fire, there's smoke. Well, when it now this isn't just referring to Babylon or Jerusalem, because you also see in Isaiah chapter 34 when referring to, I believe, Edom. It says, it will become a burning sulfur and its smoke will arise forever and ever. Well, is smoke still arising from Edom? <laughs> no, it's prophetic language to describe the ju the utter judgment of that place. Does that make sense? So, um, but nevertheless, it, here, here for sure, I'm coming to a close now with this. 
<coughs> when in Revelation 18, God told his people to come out from Babylon. Right? What was he saying? That there was a remnant in Israel in first century Jerusalem who needed to come out of that system. This is why Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom is at hand. If you don't repent, you shall perish. Right? And so, now, I'm sure some of us probably have a lot of questions with this, but simply put, Jerusalem in the first century was referred to as many things. It was referred to as the prostitute named Babylon. It was referred to as Sodom. It was referred to as Egypt. It was referred to as Mount Sinai. And so, the, God's new dwelling place isn't earthly Jerusalem. God had forsaken that. And in the, uh, in, uh, the introducing of the new covenant was the remarriage of the remnant Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles who had believed on the Lord Jesus and have entered into Mount Zion. Okay, and so this is a spiritual thing for the same reason that God tells us to enter, to come boldly to the throne of grace. Where do you go to for that? You don't go to the earthly temple. Well, even if you wanted to, you can't because it was destroyed many generations ago. But we acclimate that by the Spirit. This is why Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, when she was referencing to the temple on the hill, he said, Woman, the time is coming when the true worshipers will worship by the Spirit. Like it says in Jeremiah 3, the days are coming when people will not remember the ark of the Lord. People are not going to remember that temple because the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, through the eternal spirit, introduced better promises. Right? So, um, we don't have to go there anymore to sacrifice lamb, to sacrifice all of those things. Amen? We have a greater high priest than that of Moses. We have a greater covenant. And we have the Holy Ghost who lives in us and Christ in our midst. So, um, the application of all that I've ministered to you today, aside from the theory, is this. Come out of Babylon. Amen. Babylon is a place of bondage. It's a place of, of, of oppression. And God said to his people, come out from Babylon. We may not be those who were in the Old Test the Testament system, the old Mosaic system that needed to repent of their religion, the repent of their unbelief, repent from the old ways and their believing of the new covenant. But you may be nevertheless in a Babylon that, that you need to repent from something else that is leading you to bondage. Something else that is leading you to captivity. Something that is preventing you from entering into Zion and the rest for those who are made partakers of it. Right? God has assigned a Sabbath rest for the people of God, the Bible says in Hebrews 4. It says, let us therefore labor to enter into that rest. 
Let us labor to enter into that rest. Because there is no rest for the wicked, saith the Lord. That's what it says in Isaiah. There is no rest for the wicked. There is only rest for those who have come unto Christ. There is only rest for those who have uh, entered into him. Amen. And, and the Bible, and now the Holy Ghost, God has put the Holy Ghost in you so that even if you're not living after his ways, he will cause a lack of peace in your spirit. Amen. <clears throat> and so let, let us thank God that he will disturb you and shake you and rattle you lest you do what you want to do. The Bible says in Romans that for those, uh, he says he gave some up to their reprobate mind so that they would do what they want to do. But blessed be God that when, when you want to go off course, he will discipline you. Hallelujah. Amen. <clears throat> so let, let us, uh, I want to lead us into a prayer of repentance. I don't know what Babylon you're in, but any Babylon, any Sodom, any Gomorrah, any any Egypt to be in isn't a good one. Hallelujah. God wants you out of that place. It might be a relationship. It might be uh, uh, alcohol. It might be drunkenness. It might be pornography. It might be fornication. But nevertheless, it is a Babylon. And it's changing your identity. It is changing your name. It is changing the way you speak. It is changing the way uh, that you hear. You no longer hear the things you used to. You're hearing uh, profane things. You're hearing foul things. And the Spirit of God is, is bringing conviction to your heart this day to get you to leave Babylon. Hallelujah. Praise God. I, I feel the unction of the Holy Ghost present. Don't, don't resist the Holy Ghost. Don't resist the Holy Ghost. Like Leonard Ravenhill says, you have a, mil, a million, million millennia in all of eternity where there will be no sorrow. So what is it a little bit of sorrow to endure grief from the Holy Ghost to convict you, to get you in line? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Like I heard, I heard uh, in, in eternity, five seconds in eternity, you wish you would have prayed more, grieved more, sweated more, sacrificed more. And there are many grim things on earth that you're clinging a hold to that are not allowing you to advance in God that if you were given five seconds into eternity, you would have a clear perspective and you would not be doing what you are doing now. Hallelujah. Babylon is a place of trash. It's a place of rubbish. It's a place of bondage. And there are, there are wicked people that the devil has sent into your life to lead you into Babylon, to keep you stuck there. Hallelujah. Cut those people off. And I'm saying this prophetically. There are people here in this gathering, you need to cut people out of your life. 
You need to cut that wicked reprobate out of your life. That are, that are trying to lead you into bondage. Trying to lead you into Babylon. Hallelujah. Don't be like Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. Hallelujah. Come unto the heavenly Jerusalem. The, 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 the spirit of the bride says come. Like he told John to come up here. Did he go there physically? No. The Bible says in the Lord's day he was caught up in the spirit. Some of you don't know how to get victory in your lives because you don't know how to get up. You don't know how to come up. You don't know how to ascend by the spirit. If all these false prophets today want to argue against tongues, want to argue against praying in the Holy Ghost, but it's the self-same people who are earthly minded. They stay on earth and they're bound by earth. You need to come up by the Spirit into the high places to ascend with the fire of the Holy Ghost to burn up all the dross, to burn up all the bondage, to eradicate the works of the wicked one in your life. Hallelujah. <coughs> Father, right now we pray. Hallelujah. I place a demand on heaven, Lord. I place demands on heaven and I pray God that by your Holy Ghost that you would begin to destroy the works of the evil one. Begin to destroy every satanic altar. Begin to destroy the works of the enemy. Father, right now, may all the people that are in the sound of my voice that are under satanic oppression, I command for it to break in the name of Jesus Christ. Believe and receive that. May the grips of Babylon be broken. May the fetters of Egypt be broken. May the bondages and the shackles of Sodom and Gomorrah on your life may it be destroyed. May it be severed. May it cut off in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. May the umbilical cord that is connecting them to every ungodly individual, may it be cut off, Lord. May it be cut off in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Right now, I want you to begin to renounce every uh, uh, ungodly relationship, every ungodly practice. Lord, may all wickedness and iniquity that is funneling into their lives through their connections and the covenants that they've made with people, Lord, may it be destroyed in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. May every, may every demon lift off and come out and come off in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. I feel the power of the Holy Ghost. Some of you are tapping in by faith. Yes, Lord. Every tormenting dream, every tormenting nightmare, I command for you to seize. Hallelujah. May your people, O Lord, be forgiven by your blood in Jesus' name. May your sins be forgiven. May your sins be blotted out. And may the Lord bring a time of refreshing and pardon your every transgression. Hallelujah. Confess that to the Lord right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, get out of your flesh and begin to pray. Get out of your flesh and begin to pray. If you don't pray, you won't stay.
Hallelujah. We lift our hands unto you, O Lord. You're the great and majestic one. Bring freedom, O God. Your word says, wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom from all bondage. Bring us joy. Bring us times of refreshing. Bring us, O Lord, fullness of joy and of peace and your presence. Hallelujah. All depression, leave. Every suicidal thought, leave. All despair, leave. Every spirit of fear, every spirit of anxiety, every spirit of depression, all spirits of 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 bondage, I command for you to leave in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <coughs> Thank you, Lord. I love you, Jesus. I worship and adore you. Just want to tell you, Lord, I love you more than anything. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> Recording stopped.